Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 11, our discussion on some of the key trends of Nashville on the first part of 2023. The episode itself strayed from the original premise to become a fascinating look at the emerging tension between the rapid development of drug and diagnostics versus sociopolitical behavior that does not adequately address the underlying sources of metabolic disease. What emerged was a fascinating, complex session. Then from the vault, we have conversation 28.4 from season three, and we see Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and I discuss how the drug development landscape looked and felt a mere nine months ago. Jeff McIntyre joins the conversation and brings a more mixed perspective on the past three months. The pivotal event he focuses on is the recent ICER draft pricing guidance on resmeteram and obetacolic acid, which will be the topic of next week's episode. Jeff expresses some enthusiasm for the tentative conclusions of the report, but identifies two areas in the document that trouble him greatly. The idea that NASH is not a progressive disease for most patients, and that patients will require a biopsy for diagnosis. On the first point, the challenge is simple. If the disease is asymptomatic and does not progress, why would payers reimburse it? In addressing the second point, the group agrees that biopsy is not practical as a diagnostic tool and shifts to the focus on future standards for non-invasive testing and biomarkers. Jeff emphasizes the need for an inexpensive test that can be scaled with low or no burden to primary care practitioners. I mentioned that the guidelines are seeming to land on FIB4 as that test and recall Quentin admonition not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. As this conversation winds down, Louise Campbell comes back to the question of Nash clearly being a progressive disease. She mentions our recent conversation with Tim Jobson, Predictive Health Intelligence, which was episode five this year, and the idea of developing a simple tool to analyze blood tests to determine which patients are most likely to progress. One key point emerging from this episode is that the effects of the fatty liver pandemic will be with us far after we have begun to implement new drug and lifestyle interventions and better diagnostic testing. This is a huge issue with dramatic, far-reaching implications for health systems around the world. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dial on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jeff, what we've been doing is we've been going through interesting things we've observed about the last three months in liver space, not just in life space. Okay. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what, what you've observed in the last three months that you find interesting or important in terms of steps forward. Jeff McIntyre. Yeah, certainly. I think I would qualify that into three things that I think are probably most top of the list for me. Certainly, which I'm sure you guys have covered, it has been the momentum towards therapy approvals. We've seen the positive results of resmitaron and and Madrigal's stage three clinical trial with OCA then being submitted. They'll be probably first line of news, if you will. I think it's a late June that they've got a tentative thing. We know Madrigal is not filed yet, but we expect that to be coming up any, any moment now. And so those are pivotal moments. But we know even from the history of science that while pivotal moments are the things that tend to be celebrated, it's actually the perseverance and the continuing push of shaking the trees to make sure that things are done that are going to be the most important parts of this, that these are merely mile markers, should they go through? Kind of part 1A or 1B, I guess, uh, part of that, if you will, is ICER coming out with their pricing estimates and their draft report on NASH for OCA and Resmitteron last week, two weeks ago or so. In all transparency, I have to say that I did serve as an expert reviewer on this report from ICER, but ICER was quite good on making sure that they acknowledge that they take our comments into consideration and that they're not regurgitating or saying anything 
anything. And that said, that they're super flattered that they included patients in their draft report. But there were still some things that were troubling in the report and things that I think are troubling for folks that are not magical or intercept that they actually need to step up and make a statement on. There is a public comment period on the report. Uh, I think it's March 16th that the public comments are doing that. But most notably on the ISA report, the thing that was concerning to me is that there were two specific points that they made on that. One is that they say in the report that, number one, NASH is not a progressive disease, which was a little confounding to me. And number two on that, they say that most NASH patients are asymptomatic and therefore not impacted by the disease itself. Now, there's a little bit of nuance to that, obviously, in saying that they're not asymptomatic and impacted by the disease because, as we know, so many people that suffer from NASH have so many co-occurring conditions. And often in being treated for obesity, you kind of hit that. But it just seems incredibly naive to me to make those points that it's not progressive and that most NASH patients are asymptomatic. I think the pushback to that is that even if you grant them that the disease may not be progressive or that they're asymptomatic, what they are is now much more significantly at risk for becoming symptomatic and at risk for becoming progressive in the in the least way of considering that. And that in and of itself has to be taken seriously and has to be taken seriously when they're looking at the pricing on that. Let me go to number two. I think the other thing that's coming out right now, which is interesting, is a lot more conversation about biomarkers. Now, biomarkers have been a thread that has woven its way through all of our conversations in almost every aspect of liver health for a while, whether it's imaging, or whether it's serum-based or kind of whatever it is. And a lot of that question that has been raised by biomarkers is, what's the standard going to be? Is there such a thing as a theoretical standard that we can come up with that will replace ultimately biopsy, quote-unquote, as the uh, what used to be called the gold standard for a little bit? To me, one of the things that's happening here, and Louise and I spoke about this a little bit last week as well, is that I think we're beginning to emerge to a place where there's going to have to be some decisions made, which is that the biomarkers marker or the non-invasive that may be the best or the least burdensome may not necessarily be the most reliable. And so we know that primary care providers are super overburdened right now already. And we also know that we don't get great diagnostics. We don't get great impact on the at-risk populations without primary care. We've got to have them in order to do that. So implicit in that is that we have to have a non-invasive that can be scaled. And certainly biopsy is not that. There's no question that biopsy can't be scaled, but we've got to have a non-invasive that can be scaled with the least amount of burden to uh, primary care providers and then to the patient populations that need them. Can it be done at a community or a federally qualified health center with low cost and low issue? And so when we look at some tests that given a blood test or given an imaging test, the conversation needs to change a little bit much more towards risk stratification and ease of use. And that may mean we may not have the most reliable biomarker, if you will, uh, or not non-invasive, but instead we get one that in combination with looking at the other symptoms a person presents, say they've got type 2 diabetes, a little bit of high cholesterol, they've got something else going on that gives them that notion of we do, you know, something that's the least amount of burden in a primary care setting, but with that risk stratification, depending on those results, then send them on to more other testing. At that point, we move into some imaging perhaps, and then if that happens, if we begin to see something like through a liver stiffness test based on the results of the initial say a Fib4 or something, then we can move them into more advanced diagnostics. And 
I think that's going to be an important thing is that we've got to start talking about risk stratification in terms of uh, non-invasives. And I know Nimble and Litmus are queued up for some stuff to be coming out with them also. I mean, the guidelines all kind of touch on that, right? Isn't that the whole point about FIB4 as a frontline test? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've heard a lot of pushback about that. Sometimes it's by companies that are promoting their own diagnostic or they're just not being used correctly or whatnot. But yeah, and the um, AGA guidelines, for instance, say that concretely. They believe that it's going to be a combination of FIB4 and some sort of liver stiffness test. And I think I'm probably taking a half step back from that, saying that I think FIB4 may be one of the baby steps that we take towards that. And then depending on those outcomes and co-occurring disorders, you move to a liver stiffness test, trying to think of what's going to be the least burden on primary care in order to get them to open the door for us on this. Yeah, see, I would have to bet that for all its flaws, FIB4 is that, right? Yeah. I mean, in the States, I mean, in, in the rest of the world where you have to ask for an ALT to get it, it's a different story. But in fact, one of the things that every time we have a patient advocate who's not from the States on the podcast or even a physician, one of the things that comes up is that you can't rely on, on FIB4 the way you can in the States because ALT is not a part of a complete blood panel anywhere else unless you ask for it. So the question there, I think, is to some degree is going to be Quentin Anstey's repeated uh, admonition that we not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, that for everything that's wrong with FIB4, if we can do it now and it's two generations of successive approximation out of what we've had before, that's a good thing. Totally agree with that. I couldn't agree with that more. That does give us the step towards us. The question is whether that can be accepted, how we blend that into what the FDA would consider a regulatory standard. We see in practice how this can play out, but then in terms of a regulatory standard for approval for trials, that gets a little more tricky and a little more nuanced in that also. Louise Campbell. Jeff, can I ask, I was interested in your point where on the ISA, now it might be similar for us for NICE or drug approvals and costing, but where they don't think that NASH is a progressive disease, we don't get cirrhosis. You're not born on the whole with cirrhosis. We don't get cirrhosis basically without a progressive pathway. But even more so, if we look back, we did an episode not so long ago with Tim Jobson and the predictive health team, where they look at people's serial markers and blood tests from primary care and can predict those who have progressed. It's almost like Darwinism not being accepted. Or for me, this whole thing of liver disease is a progressive process for a lot of people. It just flies in the face of data, information and evidence and biopsy proven evidence. So that to me was an interesting flag. And I think you said it was a flag. So I'm not too sure. I'm happy to come and five to scan them all to see how much progressive disease they might not have. But um, that did interest me. And, and how you would see that playing out. Surely that's something that has to be challenged because it's not evidence-based? Yeah, I think so. And I I think that is a concern in this. If you've been in conversations with me, I've said whether we work in fatty liver disease, we work in alcoholic-based cirrhosis, whether we work in hepatitis, the reality to people working in the liver field like we all do here is we all work in liver cancer. You know, that's the end result of almost everything here. And to kind of say that we don't, I think, is a little disingenuous as well. It may not be as forward-looking as people do. Certainly the field of NASH and a lot of areas of liver health, we tend to be compartmentalized and we work on our things and then we work on kind of trying to get resolution or we try to work on stopping progression. And it tends to be kind of hyper-focused in this way. And I think this is one of the bad aspects of that as ICER has picked up on that, it seems to be. And now we're saying things that could just have incredible repercussions for companies in phase two clinical trials now if it is accepted and they cited as precedent that NASH is not progressive or this sort of liver disease is not progressive, it just seems horribly naive. Even as they, you know, OCA was redefined, if you remember the history of that, that they were redefined from being a NASH drug to being instead a drug 
for cirrhosis as a result of NASH, but, you know, by definition. And that's just implicit progression in that. Well, I think it also questions the FDA's trial outcomes when resolution is actually stated as a trial objective. If you don't have progression, you can't have regression. That really brings in the two opposite dimensions of that. If you're going to deny that NASH is a progressive disease, yet the outcomes for a trial outcome is obviously regression. And and of interest, the obesity societies this week, um, some of them were very good in talking about NAFLD and NASH, particularly within their populations, because of course it was World Obesity Day on Saturday. And I thought that was a really big step forward for that to be out there and included in their conversation now. And I was pleased to see it. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send me an email at questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the ICER draft guidance on pricing for esmeterom or butacolic acid, an important issue and one where you're invited to join us through audience participation. Send a note to questions at surfingnash.com if you want to request an invitation for the live recording Monday, March 13th at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.